My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab at the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Jeff Isaacson, an associate professor of neurosciences at UC San Diego. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Well, thanks, Forrest. It's my pleasure. So could you describe a bit about how you were brought up and how it led into you becoming a scientist? Oh, well, I'm a refugee from New Jersey, and my dad was actually a scientist. He was a physiologist who ended up teaching in a state college in New Jersey. So I was sort of around science, and it was always a fallback, but not a path that I imagined I'd necessarily be on. So basically, in my high school, college, and post years, I was more interested in sound and lighting uh, for bands. <laughs> so that was sort of my lifestyle for quite some time until... In my mid-twenties, I saw people that were about my age now doing that sort of career, and I, I didn't think I was going to make it. It's a, it's a very hedonistic lifestyle. So I, I decided to do the fallback and go into science. And to make a long story short, at one point, I had been a lab technician in a cardiovascular physiology lab and absolutely hated it and thought, you know, this is curtains for me. So what did you hate about it? Well, it was just, I think it was just a lab experience that was kind of negative. It felt like a factory mm -hmm. and it wasn't a very exciting environment for science. It was, it was addressing very straightforward pharmacological questions that didn't seem all that interesting to me. Pretty dull compared to a rock show. Yeah, exactly. And so I quit that job and I moved up to a place called East Haven, Connecticut, to live in a beach house on Long Island Sound that a friend of mine was renting. And that was all well and good, except after a few months, I was desperate for money. And I had applied for a job as a bouncer in a nightclub <laughs> and didn't get that. And I applied for a job as a liquor store clerk and didn't get that either. So in absolute despair, I walked over to the physiology department at Yale Medical School and went to the main office and asked some administrative worker there if anyone needed a lab technician. And this woman sent me down to meet this guy that, of course, I never heard of named Dick Chen. <laughs> and um, I knocked on his door. These are all things I would never imagine doing now. But I knocked on his door and said I was looking for a job as a tech. And he sort of looked at me strangely, asked for my resume. And um, he called me back and gave me the job. And it was being a technician in Dick Chen's lab at Yale that really set the stage for my future because it was a great, great experience. Met some fantastic people there and saw how exciting and fun science could be. One of the important ones was Dan Madison, who's obviously at Stanford right now as a professor. And so these were big influences that put me on track to go to graduate school at UCSF. Can you remember a particular story about your experience in the Chen lab back at Yale that kind of turned you on to science? Well, I'll be honest, and I've said this to Dan Madison, but I was always very insecure and thought that you had to be super, super brilliant to actually be a scientist. And actually, I met Dan, who's obviously a wonderful and bright guy. But, but I looked at him and I said, you know, if he can do it, I, I can do it. <laughs> Um, and, and that was a big factor, believe it or not. He really got me to put away my insecurity and realize that I could do science too. So how many years did you work in a tech before going to graduate school? Uh, altogether, maybe two and a half years, two and a half years or so. Mm -hmm. 
And you eventually decided to go to grad school at, at UCSF and work in Roger Nichols' lab. How did you choose to go to UCSF and to join Roger's lab? Well, I chose UCSF because uh, it's San Francisco. And I, <laughs> I always wanted to be in San Francisco. As someone who grew up in New Jersey, that seemed like heaven and someplace very exotic. Having come directly from graduate school in New Jersey uh, to here in the Bay Area, I can understand uh, that pull. <laughs> and I have to tell you, when I was a technician with Dick, who is also a wonderful mentor, <clears throat> I also heard a lot about Roger Nickel from Dan Madison, who had just finished his PhD working with Roger Nickel. And when I heard about the style of science that was going on there, I, I just thought that that sounded like the best possible lab in the world. And I was very lucky that I... I eventually got into Roger's lab to do my PhD. Yeah. So while you were doing your PhD with Roger Nickel, you were the first to sort of demonstrate the importance of neurotransmitter spillover. So could you talk to us about how those experiments were formed? Well, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Yeah. To tell you that when I was a graduate student, this is uh, circa 1990 or so, in Roger's lab and in many electrophysiology labs that were looking at synaptic transmission, this phenomenon called uh, long-term potentiation was of great interest to everyone, the cellular mechanism of learning and memory. Yeah. And, and that was a major focus of Roger's lab and, of course, something that he's, he's renowned for. But I have to say that as much as I would have loved nothing more than to have made great inroads into LTP. I was just a miserable failure uh, in that field of research. And uh, I was also a little bit of a curmudgeon. And at some point I decided I, I wanted to have nothing to do with uh, LTP as a student. And the one thing that I did find interesting was this obscure area that, that Roger also had promoted early in his career, which was studying inhibitory synaptic transmission. And so that became something that I veered off in. And the whole idea of the spillover story came about for a couple of reasons. One was there was a postdoc in the lab uh, named Jose Solis, who, who also, like me, was off in the wilderness working on uh, GABAergic inhibitory transmission. And he had this interesting result that he found, which was that if he applied a blocker of GABA uptake, to a hippocampal slice, and he was studying nerve-evoked inhibitory synaptic responses, the GABA uptake blocker caused a tremendous increase in the amplitude of an inhibitory synaptic response, while the underlying miniature IPSCs, these miniature quantal events that one records in the same cells, were generally unaffected. And so this was something very odd and hard to explain. So the idea there was if the receptors that were measuring these mini events seem to be seeing the same amount of GABA, so it's not like the block of the uptake was increasing the amount of presynaptic GABA that was around? Well, the block of GABA uptake was somehow preferentially only affecting the responses to nerve evoke transmission. So theoretically, when probably many, many axons were being stimulated to release GABA simultaneously, mm -hmm. the response uh, mediated by the GABA receptors on the pyramidal cells was greatly enhanced. But if you just looked at the spontaneous miniature events, which essentially reflect the spontaneous fusion of individual vesicles of transmitter at a synapse, the sort of elemental synaptic events, the quantal responses, seem to be completely insensitive to GABA uptake. And so the idea that, that we came up with was that maybe GABA uptake has nothing to do with clearing GABA out of the synaptic cleft 
For example, when uh, a miniature EPSC or a single vesicle is released, but when one activates many fibers that are releasing GABA in close proximity, there is sufficient spillover of GABA out of the synapses that can sort of pool and activate potentially extrasynaptic GABA receptors. Right, so that was this strange idea that we had for explaining that effect of the GABA uptake blocker. And it, it also shifted to another point, which was what was the role of these presynaptic receptors called GABA B receptors in the brain? Mm -hmm. So GABA B receptors are the sort of metabotropic class of GABA receptors, G protein coupled receptors that are ubiquitously expressed on excitatory and inhibitory nerve terminals throughout the brain. And we knew for many years that if you applied an agonist to those receptors called baclofen, you could very powerfully suppress neurotransmission. So activation of presynaptic GABA B receptors caused powerful presynaptic inhibition. But the, the strange question was, how were those GABA B receptors on a presynaptic terminal ever activated physiologically? And that's because in the brain, synapses made between one axon onto another axon's presynaptic terminal are rare, in fact, virtually nil in the brain. So there, there wasn't a source of a synaptic contact that would activate these presynaptic receptors. So both of these sound like really interesting ideas, both that there's this presynaptic inhibition of neurotransmission and this idea that maybe there is extrasynaptic GABA around, but it doesn't seem at all obvious that they should be related. Right. So the question was, how is it that GABA gets to the presynaptic terminal of an excitatory synapse? And the experiment that we looked at next was if we blocked GABA uptake, all right, with the same GABA uptake uh, inhibitor that I was telling you earlier, right. did it enhance the activation of presynaptic GABA B receptors? All right. And, and in fact, we showed that it did. And we showed that GABA uptake was very important for regulating the access of uh, GABA, which was obviously spilling over or diffusing away from active inhibitory synapses onto these presynaptic GABA B receptors on excitatory nerve terminals. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that, that's a long time ago, man. This is really <laughs> stretching my memory. So you mentioned that you were kind of a curmudgeon in the nickel lab and didn't want to study LTP of excitatory transmission and that inhibitory neurotransmission was, uh, as you put it, in the Netherlands or <laughs> somewhere out in the boonies, uh, at least back then. But you've continued to have this sort of uh, persistent interest in inhibitory transmission, or at least the balance between excitation and inhibition. So you've continued to be a curmudgeon and feel that inhibition is less well appreciated? Uh, that's a good point. I mean, I hadn't thought about it until you raised it that I've done a lot with inhibitory transmission. Um, I, I think, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm always looking to do things that are out of the main track, maybe. And for a long time, studying inhibitory transmission, I think, wasn't, wasn't really that sexy. To, to put it mildly. I think this has changed dramatically in recent years because there's been this appreciation that inhibitory interneurons that mediate inhibition are this incredibly diverse class of neurons that we previously never had a good handle on. And now in this modern era of uh, fantastic mouse genetics and new tools, we now have access to Cree lines that are exquisitely specific for particular subclasses of interneurons. 
And I think that's really uh, caused an explosion of interest in trying to figure out why it is that the brain has so many different subclasses of inhibitory interneurons and, and what it is that they do and what they're good for. Yeah. To me, it, it's self-evident that for the brain to work, in, in addition to excitation, there, there absolutely has to be inhibition to keep everything running smoothly. But really trying to figure out what inhibition is actually good for has been, uh, you know, a sort of compelling question. I guess um, I always found it a puzzle. Well, fast forwarding many, many, many years, you've now established your lab looking at mechanisms of olfactory coding. And a few years ago, you published a paper showing how odor representations in the primary olfactory cortex are sparse. So first, maybe you could just explain what is sparse coding? Well, I have to say I'm by no means an expert on coding. I, I'm just basically a, a simple physiologist. But sparse coding is this concept that has been put forward for, for quite some time to understand how populations of neurons might encode information. And at its simplest level, it's the notion that information can be encoded with high fidelity from populations of neurons that, that basically fire very little or very uh, poorly driven, you might say, in response to some particular stimulus, right? So that out of a large population of cells, individual stimuli are not encoded by a huge number of cells that are firing many, many spikes, but rather a distributed subset of cells that just fire very infrequently. And I think the reason why people have thought that that is a, a useful coding strategy is for a number of reasons. One is that it's very metabolically efficient. So you don't have cells firing a lot of spikes that perhaps might not be that useful in the long run of the cell. So that's the simple notion of sparse coding, just that population coding of information can be distributed amongst cells that generally fire just a few spikes above their basal or resting activity. And it's something that clearly seems to be the case now in a number of sensory regions in the brain, like the auditory system in particular, work from Tony Zador's lab and, and others really established that principle there. And we were interested to see that it, it was uh, very similar in the olfactory system, which is quite a different region of cortex. Yeah. So your paper shows that on one hand, indeed, the excitatory neurons exhibit this kind of sparse activity, but the inhibitory neurons have activity which are more widespread and, and broadly tuned across different odors. That's right. So could you talk a little bit about what this means? Yeah. So, so one of the strangest things that came out of that work, and again, this is all something that is sort of technique related. I mean, these, these kind of studies of looking at the relationship between synaptic excitation and inhibition require basically uh, whole cell voltage clamp recordings of neurons in vivo, all right? Something where you, you can examine the sub-threshold excitation and the sub-threshold synaptic inhibition. And there are actually very few labs that generally are, are very good at this technique. But what's been done previously has been that in most sensory systems, the visual system, the auditory system, it always looked like sensory-driven inhibition was quite balanced with sensory-driven excitation. All right, across the sort of receptive field of a particular neuron. And the one thing that was very unusual in the olfactory cortex was that we, we saw this very widespread and dominant synaptic inhibition onto pyramidal cells and a much more selective excitation. Now, if, if I were to try and say what this is good for, I, I could come up with some reasons, but they're, they're only guesses. I mean, obviously, I would say that this widespread or global inhibition is very good at, at ensuring that cells only would fire in response to their 
preferred excitatory synaptic input. It's a way of dampening out noise. On the other hand, this global inhibition could be good for a number of things like uh, gain control or uh, state-dependent modulation of cortical activity, just like it is in another brain region. Yeah. You know, naively before, if I knew no experimental data, I might have expected to find in some system that the inhibition was sort of inversely tuned, that you saw less inhibition. What is the difference between seeing untuned inhibition versus tuned inhibition? Well, somehow the inhibitory circuits for particular tunings are very specific. Presumably, if you're looking at a diversity of stimuli, different stimuli are driving the circuit relatively equally. And so Mm -hmm. there should be in total about the same amount of inhibition somewhere in the circuit. But when you get tuned inhibition, it means the inhibition is really getting selectively driven to a subset of neurons. But in this case, it doesn't seem to be the case. That's right. And I don't have a good explanation for why it is. The the explanation for getting co-tuned inhibition and excitation is is much easier, which is to say that local interneurons actually receive a great deal of their input from the local excitatory cells around them. So basically, the local inhibition in the circuit is innately coupled to the tuning properties of the, the cells or the network in which they're embedded. So that's the simplest explanation for getting this balanced excitation and inhibition. And the olfactory cortex, I, I don't think we know enough yet about all of the interneuron circuits there to actually make some guesses. Well, my second to last question, recently Stanford had its annual neuroscience retreat, and one of the panels this year was a little unusual in that Bill Newsom dedicated a period of time to get some feedback from the Stanford community about the Brain Initiative interim report that was recently released, of which Bill is one of the co-chairs. And I thought I might see what your feeling was on the report and maybe a, a gauge of what the UCSD community in general feels about the Brain Initiative? Well, I can just tell you, and I'm, I'm going to choose my words carefully, <laughs> because uh, the University of California at San Diego really has a lot of uh, people that were initially uh, promoting this Brain Initiative as faculty. So people like Terry Sanofsky, Ralph Greenspan, Nick Spitzer have all been uh, very instrumental, even from the earliest stages of of trying to formulate this initiative. So, so I think um, UC San Diego is very well represented, and there there is a big effort that's underway here to try and figure out what would be the the best role for a place like a university such as this to actually do its part for this initiative. Now, if if you were to ask me, broadly speaking, about what I think about the initiative, I would say oi oi oi, as my mother would say because it's going to be a difficult thing to actually set up. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, I, I'm all for any, any interest by the government and our president to promote neuroscience research, right? And I think that can only be a good thing. But how it's all going to ultimately be administered is something that I, I guess I don't have a good sense for yet, and I think that's still being worked out. Is it going to be something that's going to focus just on big science and trying to get together large consortiums of groups to tackle big problems? Or is it going to be something where, you know, individual labs sort of on the same NIH R01 basis can participate? I hope and think that both of these will be part of it. I do think that some of the announcement about what the the brain initiative is aiming for are important to keep in mind. And that is, while there's a lot of hunger, I think, to emphasize translational science and try and think about uh, if we're going to invest this money on the brain initiative, shouldn't we be focusing on human diseases straight from the start? 
I, I think clearly, you know, I'm in the camp of people that think basic science is, is really the best place to focus uh, primarily. And I think also the, the notion that the, the big issues here for the initiative are going to be technology development yeah. and really data management are very noble ones because, as, as you know very well, Forrest, you know, the, the development of new technologies are really what launch the field, right, and move things forward in, in ways that they couldn't previously. As you were mentioning earlier, the excitement about inhibitory circuits is in part launched by the ability to ask the reductive question, you know, what is the role of parvalunin positive inner neurons in such and such a behavior? But without the ability to have a handle on those, that kind of research doesn't happen. Exactly. So one of the interesting things that Bill said was that the committee is not really allowed to give much advice about how it will be administered. Mm-hmm. So their, their purview is not to answer the question that you had about big science versus smaller science. Right. So the question is, who will make those decisions? Yeah. So the NIH and the different agencies, I suppose, is the answer that Bill gave. I think initially, the one thing that I see as being the problem, and I appreciate the goal that was first raised from Rafa Yusti, which is you know, this whole challenge came about with the idea of trying to see the activity of every neuron in the brain in real time and trying to understand something about the spike firing properties of all the neurons in the brain in real time to understand how it works. I'm not so sure what all that information would tell us straight off the bat, but I can tell you that one thing that I'm not prepared to use, but which I think is something that's going to become an issue is just how does one manage huge volumes of data that probably will be coming down the line from new approaches and new technologies. I mean, there's no question we're going to have the ability to be sampling the activity, whether it be an optical approach or an electrical approach or some other technology that I don't know about. We we are going to have the capacity of interrogating the activity from huge numbers of neurons, many more than we can right now. And I think ultimately the issues of not only how to deal with the data, where to put it, how to keep it, and how to analyze it are going to be huge things that have to be overcome. So that's something that I look forward to the computer scientists and the people with a more mathematical background to think about, because it's a a huge volume of data that ultimately is going to come into play if we're going to figure out how the brain of a mouse works or a fly even works. Yeah. Well, interesting to hear your thoughts. Finally, I'd just like to give you a chance to give a teaser for what you plan to talk to us about in your talk at Stanford? Ah, well, the talk is going to focus on some recent work that, that we've been doing in collaboration with Takaki Komiyama, who's also an investigator here at, at UC San Diego. And the work that I'll be talking about is all involving two-photon imaging of activity in the olfactory bulb in awake animals and trying to understand how populations of neurons represent olfactory information. Well, that's right up my alley, so I'll I'll look forward to it. Great. And finally, in closing, we like to ask a a series of very short answer questions, which we didn't give you a chance to prepare for. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, specifically yourself, not a generic graduate student, what advice would you give yourself as that young rocker walking into Roger Nichols' lab? I think I would have said, take the time to appreciate what's around you. At this point, I have to say my greatest pleasure in life is doing experiments. Right. I I keep a small lab and I'm very involved and hands on with everything on a day to day basis. And and I can tell you, after being someone who's done this now for many decades, sometimes, you know, you you forget to sort of look outside the lab and look at the world around you a little bit. So if you could swap your sense of smell with any other organism, whose nose would you choose? Hmm. 
I would probably choose the nose of someone who's incredibly adept at detecting the assets of wonderful bottles of wine. <laughs> but this is this is something you you lack. Yeah, my my nose doesn't work very well. Yeah. Um, if I were to ask you, what is the first experiment that you ever did? What pops into your head? Mm, the first experiment I ever did was as a child, trying to see if I could cook a hot dog by sticking two forks into each end of the hot dog mm -hmm. and connecting two wires from each of those forks to an electrical outlet. <laughs> and I can tell you that the, the result was not a, a very a very promising one. <laughs> what, what was it just nothing or? or... Uh, no, near electrocution. Near electrocution. Oh, man. Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Dr. Isaacson. Hey, thanks a lot, Florence. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Chala Rugulu, uh, an assistant professor of cell biology at Duke University. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.